BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Quirology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Quirology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Quirology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 89. When sexuality is forced into the dark, then I think a culture of abuse is the natural result of that. Emily Joy is a spoken word poet, yoga teacher, and author living and working in Nashville. Her advocacy takes place at the intersection of faith, sexuality, and healing, and her work has been featured in Time, Cosmopolitan, Jezebel, and more. Emily is the co-creator of the Church 2 hashtag, a Me Too spinoff exposing sexual violence in Christian churches and other faith communities. She's also a sexuality education writer for the website Scarletine, and in her spare time, she works at a church. Uh, Emily's forthcoming book about purity culture and the Church 2 movement will be published with Fortress Press in a year, year and a half or so. Um, that's new. Emily just signed that book deal last week, uh, which I am so excited about. She talks about it a little bit near the end, uh, but a lot of this conversation is going to be worked into her book. Uh, so excited for that. Wish it could come out like now. <laughs> but congratulations to her on that. Uh, but before we dive into the episode, a couple things. Uh, first, speaking of books, uh, we're putting together the launch team for my book, uh, which is titled Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. If you're interested in getting a free advanced copy of that book, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash launch team. Uh, we only have 200 slots open. Uh, there's some requirements that kind of go along with it. Uh, but go check that out. Uh, read through all the details over on my website, MatthiasRoberts.com slash launch team. Um, and then second thing, this is just really exciting news. <laughs> Queerology was named as one of the 12 best LGBTQ podcasts of 2019 by the Oprah magazine, <laughs> which is wild to me. Um, I am still like giddy. I found about I found out about this a couple days ago and can't quite get over it because it feels like a big deal. <laughs> and and. That's largely, I think, because of you all, you who listen to this show and and then the guests who are on it. Like, my goodness, 
I, I don't want to sell myself short in, in that. Like there's something to be said about sitting in this closet week after week. But for a podcast that's made in a closet, quite literally, to be on that list, uh, it's it's amazing. So thank you, all of you. This is a, this is something that I think we can celebrate together because um, that's huge. That's huge. Oprah. And that's it. That's everything for this week. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Emily, hi. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So excited to finally get you on the show. Uh, so to start, the question I ask everyone. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Oh, man. Um, I love the question because it's so open-ended, right? You can take it and just kind of run with it. Um, you know, how I identify is uh, constantly in flux and has changed a lot over the last year or two. Um, I would say right now, you know, I identify as um, a woman. I'm I'm trying out the word gay, um, but have been using queer for a very long time. Um, have also been trying the word lesbian. I don't know. Sometimes uh, it feels like you need to, or I need to uh, hear what something sounds like coming out of my mouth before I feel um, like I have a good idea of whether or not I agree with it. <laughs> um, sort of like, uh, like bats using echolocation, you know, they throw the sound waves out and it pops back off the rocks and that's how they don't run into cliffs and stuff. Um, and so, so that's kind of how I feel about that. Um, and, and my faith has informed that in a lot of ways, like both positive and negative. Um, you know, I think for a long time, uh, my faith served as a sort of shield against, um, acknowledging or coming to terms with a lot of that. Um, but also I have found it to be a place where I can explore some of that now too in a different context. So I feel like it's been some of both for me. I mean, you've, you've been on a journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I would love to hear how some of that has progressed. Cause like you were married to a man for a while. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of complexity in kind of what you've been exploring and, and how that has come about. I, love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I mean, this is all, you know, again, stuff that's in flux. I've only just recently like started talking about it on the internet TM, you know? Um, but yeah, no, I was married to a man for about four years. Um, and I think when I first, when I first came out, I, you know, after 25 years, I was like, oh, I'm not straight actually. Um, but I originally came out as bisexual because I, in my mind, I was like, well, I'm married to a man. So obviously I'm attracted to men right? Um, but also I'm attracted to women. So this is, you know, this is what makes sense to me at the time. Um, and it was kind of a multi-year process after that of realizing, oh, that's not actually what's happening here. Um, but I think that it, it's really hard when you come out in that context because there's a lot at stake. Um, and it's, it's always hard, I think, anytime that you come out, there's a lot at stake. Um, but the particular things that are at stake in that context are like, this entire life that you've built, um, and this other person that you've made promises to and that sort of thing. Um, and so, so yeah, it was a very hard process in, in coming to learn that like, um, actually that was not what was going on and that I needed to be in a different like relational environment in order to thrive and like be who I am and, and who I was created to be. I, I mean, I can only imagine <laughs> what 
that's been like. But I mean, I'm also sitting in his house right now. You know, like we're oh. still we're, we're still friends. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's not been that's not been at that's not been at no cost. Um, and that's not been without a lot of like really hard and intentional work and therapy. Um, and you know, that sort of thing. And it's definitely not, um, it's not normative for how divorces go as far as I've been able to tell. I mean, I'd be curious, like you write and speak a whole lot around purity culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, first maybe like for people who have never heard that term before, which there may be some people who listen who who don't know that term. Like, what is it? But then I'd be curious, maybe how purity culture has kind of played into that, especially with like heteronormativity mm-hmm. and whether you see that in your story. Like, yeah, I'd be curious about that. Totally. Um, well, okay. So everybody, I think, kind of has their own defini- definition that's slightly different. My like sort of elevator pitch definition for purity culture is um, abstinence until heterosexual monogamous legal marriage or else okay and then of course like what the or else is your mileage is going to vary on that that'll vary by your denomination in some denominations and some traditions it's more like um or else you will literally go to hell and burn and others are like or else you'll have a bad marriage and no one will want you or else you'll get pregnant and die you know what i'm saying like these sorts of things um there's always an or else though there's always a catch there's always some kind of like threat to hang above the head of the people that are being influenced by this. And so that's, that's sort of my definition of that. Um, and so I, you know, I I think even within that definition, there's a lot of ways that that has played into my story. And I would say, um, you know, the way that my particular story has played out thus far has been a combination of purity culture and also just personality. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm like a pretty hardcore Enneagram five and I don't do like, um, like theoretical um, emotions, you know what I'm saying? It's not like I can sit here and just like think about what something might be like, you know what I'm saying? I have to experience it for myself. Um, the, I have to experience emotions for myself to really understand them. Um, and, and so I think part of it was a personality thing of, you know, I just, I didn't date any women, I didn't date women. I didn't, I mean, in high school, I thought that was a sin, but like, even after I stopped thinking it was a sin, I just didn't, um, because I didn't think that applied to me. And I was just like, well, you know, I, I've been dating men my whole life, so I must be straight. I I must, you know, I, at times, I don't know, probably somebody else in the world has done this. This is like embarrassing, but I used to like joke about being like the straightest person that I knew, which is hilarious, um, now, but like, but that's really what I thought, like, because I just never had any experiences that made me question that. And so, so I think part of it was that part of it was just like, um, and, and I don't like very many people. <laughs> and so I didn't date a lot anyway. Um, you know, when I say I dated men all my life, what I mean is like, we went on like dates to the movie theater and like held hands. Uh, that's what I mean by dating men. Um, and then post purity culture, I dated like two men and got married to the second one. So it it was not I wasn't a big dater, and I and I'm, I never have been really. Um, but I think you know with with purity culture, there's very much a sense of like I don't know. Some people grew up in a very like virulently homophobic context where it was like it was actively like gay people are going to hell, blah blah blah. That's not so much what I grew up in, even though I think that's definitely what they 
the people in my church and my family and that sort of thing believe. But, um, but it was more so just that they, I think that they thought if they didn't bring it up, it wouldn't exist. Like if we don't ever talk about this, then no one's going to get the idea in their head to be gay. And so it wasn't so much that I had all these like virulently homophobic ideas in my head about queer people. It was more so much that like, it just was completely like under the radar because it wasn't acknowledged. We didn't talk about it. And so it never even occurred to me to be a, a thing that I should ask myself. Um, you know, and even throughout all my time of like, you know, deconstructing my faith and all this, I, I got to a place where I was like vocally advocating for my friends who were in same sex relationships and like very stoked about their relationships and like very affirming of them and just literally never thought to ask like, if it's okay for them, is it okay for me? You know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like that, that kind of need to have to experience it for yourself. And you have experienced it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like really happy. And like, yeah. it's so it's very much like confirmation of like, yes, I was correct. <laughs> very gay. Um, but, but it's really hard to, um, I don't know, it's hard to um, have faith that your intuition is correct um, about yourself, especially because, um, well, number one, when there's so much at risk, but number two, that like, um, we've sort of been taught that like our intuition is bad, right? Because it comes, it comes from the body and it comes from the heart and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And, um, you know, so it, it's really difficult. I think that process of, of learning that like, oh, actually my body is telling me some very important stuff right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, talk about that more, like, because this is a lot of the work that you do yeah. about like embodiment mm-hmm. and the ways that interacts and is opposed to a lot of what is taught in faith communities. Um, I mean, what has that journey been like for you? Yeah. And what's the work that you're doing in that? Well, I mean, so I think a lot of this just comes from, um, going through the process of developing a yoga practice and then becoming a yoga teacher. Um, and so, so I've been teaching yoga for about a year and a half now only. So I'm pretty fresh to it. Um, and only practicing for about, about four years now. Um, but, but I've just learned so much about like faith, um, and about sexuality through the, the process of practicing and teaching yoga, because there's so much of it that is about presence and paying attention and, um, you know, really going on like a healing journey with yourself. Um, and man, like Christianity is like real bad at the body in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, I think you can think of, um, really easy kind of low hanging fruit, ways off, you know, or you can think of real easy kind of low hanging fruit ways off the bat, like the ways that, you know, evangelical is very, evangelicalism is very sex negative and, you know, all this type of stuff. But, um, I don't, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me that a lot of like progressive quote unquote Christianity has like, um, a, a great relationship with the body. I mean, I think they probably hate it less than, uh, some other sort of strains of Christianity, but, um, it's not enough to just not hate your body. You have to develop like an actual good relationship with it. Um, and that includes acknowledging your trauma. You know, I'm very not about this whole, like, um, 
listen to your body, meaning um, uncritically do everything that it says. You know, I, I think that sometimes the, our bodies uh, have trauma and sometimes trauma can interfere with how you process information about where you are at in the world, your sense of safety, um, you know, what you need to do to survive. Bessel van der Kolk says that trauma literally rewires the way that the brain responds to stimuli, you know? And so, um, so it doesn't seem to me that, that, um, there is a lot of resources for people out there. And, and I think that for me, reconnecting with the body and learning to like, um, love and heal it in spite of trauma, um, has been really key to like being an okay person that is like sane and can functional and, and uh, that is sane and can function in the world, you know? Um, and I, and I say that a hundred percent seriously because I'm also a person that has struggled with mental illness. Um, you know, and I'm diagnosed with bipolar and this sort of thing. So I mean, like literally reconnecting with my body has helped me not just to be functional, but also like save my life, mm. you know? Um, and, and I think it's a thing that's overlooked in a lot of ways because like talk therapy is great and medication is great. I do both of those things. Uh, but to ignore the body and just do those things is only going to be, you know, putting band-aids on bullet wounds. You're like speaking my language right now. <laughs> As you've kind of gone down this journey of reconnecting with your body, what what has that been like for you of like learning how to work with, oh, is this a trauma response versus what do I trust? Like, how have you kind of navigated that? Yeah. Um, well, with a lot of therapy. <laughs> um, and it's been really hard, too, because I think once you really connect with what your actual body is saying, it requires a lot of you. You know, you're like, oh, like, I have to um, come out as gay now. You know, like, I, I, I can't just keep living my life the way that it was. I might have to set some boundaries now, like this sort of thing. You know, it's really hard. Um, and And also, I don't know, like, I have people say to like, approach uh, like the body with like curiosity, you know what I'm saying? People, when you go to, when you like listen to a guided meditation, oftentimes they'll be like, stay curious, blah, blah, blah. I just try to like stay amused with myself, um, and try not to like spiral. Cause the thing is like, I'm aware that I'm going to have trauma responses about stuff sometimes, you know, like just given the, the various things that have happened to me in my life, of course I'm going to have trauma responses about stuff. So I try to stay amused with myself and I try to, I try to just, kind of look at the response that's happening in my body and in my heart and kind of just turn it around in the light and be like, now that's interesting. Like, what could that mean? Maybe, maybe that is indicative of some sort of external reality. Also, maybe it's not indicative of some sort of external reality. Maybe this is just um, my brain like latching onto something and wanting to do the spirally thing, you know? Um, and, and the thing is that is hard internal work that like no one else can do for you. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't look at someone's reaction and be like, okay, well, this is what category that falls into. You know what I'm saying? Like that's hard internal work that everybody has to do for themselves. Um, but I think that it is really vital work because I don't think that, I mean, we really need to not, um, like demonize, uh, the body. Uh, but we also need to recognize that the body and the brain and the heart can be 
affected by trauma. And so we need to approach ourselves um, gently and not and with the criticism of a friend, you know? Um, and that's, that's kind of how I try to approach myself. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I, I mean, speaking of trauma, like that kind of ties in directly with some of the other work that you do with Church Two, uh, which is an offshoot of the Me Too movement that, that you and Hannah Pesh kind of developed together. I'd love to hear more about that, like like bringing light to abuse within faith communities. So I think if like, if you can't tell so far from everything, it's like everything that I do is sort of mixed together like spaghetti. You know what I'm saying? Like little one part is tangled up with another part, which is tangled up with another part. Like it kind of all goes together, but in like a weird way. Um, like a recipe full of like a bunch of disparate ingredients that you wouldn't necessarily think would go together. But then when you put them all in a pot together, it tastes good. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do basically. Um, but yeah, the thing, so with church too, I mean, that was a thing we didn't set out to do that. You know, that happened on accident. Um, now it's like a whole thing. Um, but, but all that started out was, was me like sharing this story about this experience that I had had in high school. Um, and then other people stepping forward and being like, I had a similar experience, you know, me too. That was the whole, the whole point of it. And so we decided to put a hashtag on it uh, because we thought that it would be useful to have sort of a separate conversation about that because, um, you know, every church two story is a me too story, but not every me too story is a church two story, if that makes sense. And so we were like, there's some factors about these situations that are unique to religious circumstances. You know, you don't have Harvey Weinstein, for example, justifying his actions based on like a chapter and verse from the Bible. Um, but you do have pastors doing that. And so that's where we're like, okay, this is, this is a separate conversation because there's all these, you know, alternative factors that go into this. Um, and so, so that's been a lot of trauma work, you know, and, and, and so some of that has been really, um, difficult to like, like emotionally to just hold everybody's stories and hold everybody's trauma um and and has required a lot of like you know boundaries and like self-care and that sort of thing um but it's also been very rewarding because I think at least for me like you know that was a story that I sat on for 10 years I sat on that for 10 years and I didn't talk to like really anybody about it a couple friends um you know but then I shared it with the world and it empowered so many other people to like also share their story. And so this thing that was this source of like massive shame for me became this source of redemption and liberation, not just for me, but for like lots of other people, thousands of strangers that I don't even know, you know, um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's been such a, it's been such a thing, like, a, um, a coin with two sides, you know, it's been, it's been so difficult, but it's also been so meaningful and rewarding. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about kind of how powerful it is to be able to share those stories, those stories that bring so much shame, so much secrecy with the world 
and having other people being like, yeah, this is common. And, and one thing that's kind of come out of that is like, I mean, like you said, this kind of took on a life of its own. There's so many conversations now happening around like this happened in churches too. It, and it's been interesting to watch that kind of bleed into more conservative spaces. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and like this idea of like this hashtag was started by two queer women. And now these conversations are happening in spaces where queerness is not allowed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm interested in what that's kind of been like to watch this take on a life of its own. So I have I have so many thoughts about that. Um, I think one reason why, like, I have tried, it's, that's one reason why, like, from the beginning, for the last year and a half, I have tried really um, doggedly to stay connected to the conversations, to tweet about it all the time. Because my feeling is, you know, you can try as much as you want to, to separate this like church to movement from the way that the church teaches about sexuality overall. But like, you can't, you can try, but I'm not going to let it happen. Um, And so, so when I see, you know, these people who like, for example, that summit that they had in December, um, where they were, you know, wanting to talk about church two stuff and they were wanting to talk about abuse, but they're all like complementarian pastors who are super anti-gay, like, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, okay, like, I hope that everyone develops better reporting policies. You know what I'm saying? Like from on an administrative level, I hope everyone has better reporting policies. I hope everyone knows when to call the police. I hope everyone like knows what to do it these are these are things that everyone can do and everyone should and if you're in a church community where you don't know what to do if someone comes forward with a claim of abuse you should address that yesterday this sunday would be a great time to ask your pastor um and so so there's that you know it's not that they could it's not like they can do nothing um but ultimately the whole approach from like okay how do we make better reporting policies Um, is coming from a really reactive stance of what do we do once abuse has already happened? Um, How do we not mess up once abuse has already occurred? Um, And it doesn't really address the question of how do we change a culture where this is normal, protected, acceptable, where this happens often enough to, you know, have multiple news exposés featuring hundreds of accusations in a single denomination like how do we change the culture you know um and that's where we have to really get to talk about the church's teaching on and understanding of sexuality and the thing is a lot of these folks are not willing to do that um and that's why i have tried to be super annoying on twitter and everywhere else about the reality of this which is that like again it's the band-aid on the bullet wound if you are not willing to change the way that you teach about sexuality you are putting a band-aid on the bullet wound of church too yeah i mean i my, like my mind is going to this idea of sexual shame mm-hmm. and i think anytime we're working with sexual shame and the suppression that that kind of causes uh-huh. like i mean it's like all of this abuse is happening almost like a natural outflowing of the way sexuality is being taught oh yeah there's a straight arrow so here's the thing when sexuality is forced into the dark, 
then I think a culture of abuse is the natural result of that. Um, so, so some of this does have to do with, you know, the actual, um, teachings on, you know, submission and modesty and lack of sex ed and all this sort of stuff. But, but, um, yeah, it's just when, when sexuality is primarily shame-based, um, you're gonna have a culture of, um, not just personal dysfunction, but also abuse. And, there's not really, there's not a way, there's not a way to teach one man, one woman for life, legally, monogamously, heterosexually, or else. Um, there's not a way to teach that without shame. And that's not very popular. Um, <laughs> it's not, not a very popular um, thing for a lot of people, but it's the truth. So and could you, could you unpack that a little bit more? Because, like, I, I can imagine there are listeners who are, like, listening to you, like, 100% nodding their head and being like, oh, yeah. But imagine there's other people who are like, what? <laughs> Just for example, all right, let's take the issue of sex ed, right? Because a lot of churches are, like, abstinence only, blah, blah, blah. You know, true love waits, silver ring thing, whatever you did. And they're like, oh, it's not shame-based, but, like... They've done studies on this and like, first of all, it's not effective. Okay. It's not, some of the studies have shown that abstinence only sex ed, um, delays the onset of a sexual activity by a matter of months. Um, but also showed that like when people do start having sex, they're less likely to use protection, um, because they don't know how and think that it's more sinful to prepare to sin <laughs> than it is to like have a condom on hand. You know what I'm saying? Than it is to just like, whoops, accidentally happened. And so there's that. It's not effective. But also, I mean, talk to anyone who isn't like a married heterosexual white male who came out of purity culture. Um, and you will find, I mean, this is all, no, people don't do studies on this stuff. This is anecdotal, but like you will find so much shame, so much dysfunction, so much inability to have sex, inability to have healthy relationships, like self-loathing, eating disorder, self-harm, like all these things that come out of this like prime like this prime, what is the word? Like primal hatred of the body produced by the sexual shame. And it's just like, and even, and, and it hurts men too. You know what I'm saying? Like it hurts even, even like, I've been surprised how many like married white heterosexual men out of purity culture look like they have it all together on the outside. But then like you get a beer with them and you find out like their marriages are struggling too because they've been taught to see themselves as these like insatiable sex monsters and they can't get that out of their head in order to like love themselves and their partner well, right? So like it hurts everyone. Um, and I think the people that have got out of it unscathed are either very lucky or very privileged. And that's just that's just when we're looking at the interpersonal level. I mean, we all know that. Like every, Everybody has friends they talk to about their sex lives, about their marriage. Like, so many people are carrying wounds and scars from this type of stuff. Um, and especially when you look at, you know, abuse, oftentimes that's why it goes unreported or undiscussed for 10 years is because, like, people are embarrassed of it and they thought they did something wrong because they were taught that any sexual experience outside of marriage was sinful. And so they had this experience it was outside of marriage for a lot of people. Some it wasn't, but for a lot of people in church too, it was outside of marriage. And so 
they don't want to talk about it. And when their church to experience is in the context of marriage, there's very much this like stand by your man stuff in the church of like, well, your marriage is the most important thing and the marriage is more important than the people in it in that way. And so you can see how all of these teachings sort of serve to uphold shame. And shame is what peeps, shame is what keeps people quiet. And keeping people quiet serves the interests of abusive institutions. Yes. And that's why hashtags aren't just hashtags. Mm-hmm. You know, this is direct resistance to the institution. I mean, it's, it's so, it's, I mean, such important work that you're doing. The, these conversations, I mean, you, you already know this, need to be had. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I'm so glad that you're providing spaces for those. I mean, for people who have these stories or who are just recognizing, like, I have so much sexual shame, which I feel like is all of us. Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly. <laughs> like, what are some of the practices that you've learned to help with that? Oh, man. Um, I mean, obviously, that's another therapy thing. Because <laughs> um, a good therapist, at least, you can talk to him about everything. But uh, I don't. I don't know if it's so much a, this isn't really a practice, um, but I just, man, I have found so much healing in like good love. You know what I'm saying? In like, in being brave enough to like reach out and form a relationship with another person. Like my relationship with my girlfriend, Caitlin has been like, um, one of the most healing things that I have ever experienced. Um, because it has, you know, it's an arena for both of us to, um, sort of sort out what it means to like um, love and be loved in a way that isn't predicated on control, um, that isn't predicated on these sort of like shame-based systems that we grew up in. Um, and, And so, yeah, it's just been that has been a really wonderful thing. That's not, it's not really a practice. <laughs> um, but I do think there's a lot of um, good healing power in, in good love. That idea that relationships can heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's such a beautiful, hopeful thing. Yeah. And it makes me sad that there are people out there who are like trying to avoid a same sex relationship, like the plague, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, they're like, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. And I'm like, mm, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. So you're also a poet. Yeah. And something that, I mean, I've, I've, had a lot of conversations around this idea of of poetry being a tool to heal from trauma. Yeah. I'm curious if if you found that in your work. I think um, the reason I've written a little less poetry in recent years than I normally do, I mean, I've still written a a few new poems. I've got about five or six that I'm going to be putting out um, this year because I haven't put any out in um, a little while. So I've got about five or six new ones coming down the pipe. But um, but I haven't written quite as much as I have been, partially just because I've been, you know, dealing with my own trauma and stuff, but um, also because of therapy. And I think before I was maybe using um, my poetry as like a therapy when instead I should have been hiring the services of a therapist. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, but but yeah, no, I think definitely that it has been a process, like it's been a, a part of the process of of healing for me because I think that when I write a poem about something, I, I'm usually taking something that has been painful to me 
and taking a snapshot of it and exploring it and holding it up to the light and turning it around and sort of distilling it into this piece of art that's going to be for other people. But I know that like when I put it out there and other people read it, or at least I hope, you know, that it will then become a source of like beauty and healing and inspiration for them as well. So for me, it's part of completing the cycle. Emily Nagoski um, in Come As You Are and Burnout talks a lot about completing the cycle of this. She's talking about the stress response system, um, but she's, you know, uh, I think a lot of her work can be applied to trauma. Her work can be applied to all this stuff. Um, and that's what I think of it as. It's part of completing the cycle. It's, you know, the terrible thing happened and then we process the terrible thing and make bad decisions about the terrible thing and drink about the terrible thing and go to therapy about the terrible thing and go to yoga about the terrible thing and like start to become functional, even though the terrible thing is still terrible and then write a poem about the terrible thing. And then, and then at that point it, you sort of release it into the air like a dove and you're like, okay, it's not necessarily just mine anymore. You know, now it's everybody else's too. And, and they might get something out of it that I didn't even intend. You know, I've had people come to me after I, after I put a poem out and they're like, oh my God, this part of your poem spoke to me because I had this experience. And I'm like, wow, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I intended in my mind. But like, that was helpful to you. (laughs) And something that came out of my mouth was helpful. Um, And so I'm like, that's a compliment to me. Um, Because when we, it's sort of like church too, you know, you you release things into the wild and then um, they take on lives of their own and that's okay. And I think everybody who's an artist kind of has to, you know, come to terms with that. But but yeah, for me, the writing about it is a part of completing the cycle and allowing it to um, become to become a part of the healing. And that's making me think of, like, in, in the therapy world, we often talk about the, the need for containers, like containers of experiences, containers of self, and, mm-hmm. and how language and poetry can quite literally do that, yeah. like provide containers. And, and so maybe, and maybe they're my containers, my poems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. How can people find your work? Um, so um, people can find my work all over the internet. Um, if you Google me, lots of stuff will come up. Um, that might be fun. Um, but you can go to my website. <laughs> you can go to my website, emilyjoypoetry.com, and I'm Emily Joy Poetry on um, all the things. Poetry, although I do uh, lots of other things as well, obviously. Um, and also this will be the first time that I'm announcing this on a podcast, but I did, um, just sign on for a church Two book with Fortress Press. Um, it will be about church Two and about, um, kind of the theologies behind church Two stories and how those things, um, serve to uphold cultures of abuse and how we can heal together from those things. And so, um, that will be forthcoming. Don't have a date yet. Um, but that is happening, which I am very excited to share. Yeah, that's so exciting. I am thrilled. I feel like Fortress, they're just like at the cutting edge. <laughs> yeah. So many people that I love have put books out uh, with Fortress lately. So I'm very stoked to be a part of the family. Yeah. Well, welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Emily. This has been such a treat. Yeah, thank you. I have been um, wanting to be on the podcast for a while. So I'm glad to make it finally happen. Yeah, me too. To find out more about Emily Joy, head over to her website at emilyjoypoetry.com. She's also on Twitter and Instagram at emilyjoypoetry. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at queerologypod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. 
Queerology is produced with support from its listeners. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review and I'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. Sometimes it takes a really long time. Until next week, y'all. Bye. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.